prophecies on the coming of the Christ. So many people don't know this, but thousands of years before Jesus ever came, it was prophecy that he would come. It's, it's uh, unbelievable when you look at some of these prophecies, how accurate they were on the one who would come. And so we're going to look at what I call the prophecy of prophecies. The prophecy that undergirds all things. And this is Genesis 3, 6 through 15. It's going to be found in your bulletin. Genesis 3, 6 through 15. And this is actually in the NIV. I'm going back and forth, back and forth. Genesis 3, 6 through 15. This is about Adam and Eve in the garden and having sinned. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Well, Christmas is upon us. It's amazing how quick a turn we take to Christmas, isn't it? Not only is the, is the turkey still smoking, then people are outside putting up their Christmas lights. <laughs> I, are you one of those people that right away you start decorating as soon as you're done? If you are, I hate you. Okay? I'm just letting you know that. Okay, can't you relax? Can't you digest a little bit? It's amazing though. You go to the stores and you know what happens the day after Thanksgiving? Black Friday. Anybody participate in Black Friday? Shame on you. Shame on you. Come see me for pastoral counseling after this service. Black Friday. You know, we start thinking about what are we going to buy for Christmas for that special summer, you know? It's such a challenging question. What am I going to buy? Well, maybe you could follow the lead of that song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. Remember The Twelve Days of Christmas, My True Love Gave to Me? And it goes on and enlists. Well, I discovered an interesting thing from the oracle, the internet, that someone has been tracking how much it would cost to give someone all of the 12 days of Christmas. Making one's true love happy will cost a whopping $87,403 this year, a minuscule increase according to the latest cost analysis of the items in the carol, the 12 days of Christmas. That's the grand total for the single partridge in a pear tree to the 12 drummers drumming. 
according to the annual Christmas price index compiled by PNC Wealth Management. The prices of year are up $794 or less than 1%. So this company, PNC Wealth Management, has been tracking since 1984 how much it costs to give the 12 days of Christmas. The main driver behind the higher cost is that the price of gold has increased 43%, bringing the five gold rings up from $150 to $500. Jim Dunnigan continues, although wage increases were modest, nine ladies dancing at $5,473 per performance is the costliest item, surpassing many of the material goods. The most expensive goods are the seven swans a-swimming at $5,250, but their costs decreased 6.3% from last year's $5,600. The cost tends to be volatile because of supply and demand. Not sure how one could find swans on the supply and demand market. Costs for 10 lords of leaping, $4,400, 11 pipers piping, $2,285 per performance, and 12 drummers drumming, $2,475 per performance. Dunnigan says that reflects the labor market in which the unemployment rate rose to near 10% after sitting below 5% for much of the decade. So there you have it. It's a steal right now to go out and buy all of these things for a mere $87,403. Let me tell you, if somebody got me the five swans a-swimming, I would be absolutely tickled pink, wouldn't you? Seven swans a-swimming. Thank you, son, for that. It's good someone's listening to my sermon, you know? You know, what do we love about Christmas? Is it really the gifts? Is it getting the gifts? Well, you know, when you're little kids, that obviously is a big part of it. But what I discover as you get older, the gifts become less and less and less important. I think what attracts us to the idea of Christmas is this whole idea of hope. That there may be an answer to the questions that really vex us. Why am I here? Is there an answer to the problems of this world? To the problems of my life? Is there some sort of solution? You know, it's interesting for 11 months we spend trying to unravel and fix all of the problems of the world. But on that 12th month, the world sort of pauses and stops and begins to think about spiritual things. Because I think that deep down we understand that the problems that are in this world cannot be solved by ourselves. There needs to be a deeper answer, a spiritual answer. Wouldn't it be great if just this Christmas we could sort of see beyond the pale, that we could grasp this deeper spiritual truth about what life is all about, about why we're here, about how the problems of this world can be fixed? What if the answer had already been given? What if you and I, even today, could understand why the world is as it is, why we are as we are? And what if we could know that God cared? That if indeed there was a plan that was in place to make all things new, to fix the problems of the world, to really bring peace on earth, goodwill to men. I think that if we knew the plan of the world, we could rest easy, even amidst the problems that we experience. Because we knew that at the end of the day, all would be fixed, 
all would be well, that God is indeed in charge and things are on schedule. Well, what I want to suggest to you is that this passage tells us everything we need to know about the questions we have about life. This passage that we just read tells us the problem with the world. What is the main problem that we really are experiencing? But it not only tells us the problem, it also tells us God's promise. What is God going to do to fix and rectify the problems of the world? And then finally, it foreshadows God's plan. God's plan of what He's actually put in place. And the neat thing about that is that God's plan is a, per is a person. In fact, all of history, all of life can be summed up in one verse and one verse alone, Genesis 3.15. It is the verse upon which all of history hinges. And to understand Genesis 3.15 is to understand the Bible, indeed to understand ourselves. The premise of my sermon is quite simple. History only makes sense if there is a Savior. And your life will only make sense if there is a Savior. And so I'm going to unpack this passage and this verse. We're going to look at three things. Number one, man's problem. What is man's problem? Number two, God's promise. And then finally, number three, God's plan. Man's problem, God's promise, God's plan. Okay, let's unpack these things. Number one, man's problem. Why is the world so messed up? Well, if we play the tape all the way back to Genesis, we see that God put man and woman in the garden. If you remember, He gave these commands to God, rule over this earth, fill the earth with yourself and subdue it. Rule over all of the creatures, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and the fish of the sea. And God made man and woman in His image, male and female. See, God made man to rule over this world. The scriptures tell us that the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth He has given to man to rule as His governor. And that's why He made man and woman in His image. Remember, God is a spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones. So when He talks about man and woman as an image, He's talking about the characteristics of God. Knowledge and righteousness and holiness. That was the way man and woman was created. But man and woman was created as a creature, not as a creator. They were given certain positive commands to rule the earth, but also certain negative commands. Remember, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you do, you will surely die. Well, along came the serpent, who was more crafty than all of the other creatures. This picture of Satan. And what did the serpent say? Did God say you really shouldn't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yes, he did. You will not die if you eat from this tree. Indeed, if you eat from it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Why don't you go ahead and eat of it? See, at that time, that juncture in history, that specific point, man and woman was asked the question, who will you follow? The one who created you? The one who gave you life, or this one, Satan, in his steps to try to become God, independent of God, to take his place, if you will. Well, man and woman made their choice. When they saw the fruit, they ate of it, and instantly life and mankind as we know it fell into misery. 
Because the reality, my friends, is that man and woman, you and I were not designed to live independently as, go as gods ourselves. And so all of the misery of man that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis is the result of that one decision. What I call a fourfold destruction of humanity. Let me give you the alienation, four types of alienation that occurred when man and woman made that decision. Number one, spiritual alienation. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Where are you? I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. See, man and woman had never hid from God before. They had been in fellowship with him face to face, knowing him intimately. In Hebrew, the, this concept of walking, this idiom of walking, means to have fellowship. That God would walk alongside with man and woman in fellowship. Now, no longer, man hid from God and indeed was cast out of the garden. Spiritual alienation. You ever wonder why the world hides from God? You know, one of the most dangerous things you can do is go into a public place and start a conversation about God place vanishes just like that because we don't want to talk about God. There's a sense of unease between us and God, spiritual alienation. But that fall of man and woman also caused psychological alienation. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now let me ask you a question. Was man and woman always naked before? They'd always been naked, but now they realized it. They were ashamed. You know what this concept of shame is? Of course we do. It's the sense of unease with ourselves. That all is not well with us when we look into our hearts. A sense of unease. And so what do we try to do? Is not all of history, is not all of our lives this big cover-up? A big way to find a fix-it? Think of all of our problems, shame, and insecurity, and eating disorders, and workaholism. Is it not psychological alienation as we are uneasy with ourselves? But what about social alienation? They not only covered themselves, they covered themselves from one another. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And what did the man say? The woman you put here with me, the woman, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. Where did the blame game begin? <laughs> right in the garden. It was her fault. And then what? he looked at the woman. What did the woman say? It was his fault. It was the serpent's fault. See, the man could have, and the woman could have owned it right there, couldn't have they? Could have said, it. we, we disobeyed. We, we cheated. We lied. We didn't obey what you said. But instead of owning it, they deflected it. Is not the result of all of our relational problems on planet Earth the result of that? The marital problems between a husband and a wife. It's his fault. It's her fault. Racism. It's them. They're the ones that are causing the problems. Fascism. Classism. Genderism. Are not all of those the result of social alienation because of the fall of man and woman? And then finally, physical alienation. 
Man and woman, these godlike creatures who were designed to rule over the earth and over creation. Well, now creation fights back. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat of it until you return to the dust from which you came. Earthquakes, drought, starvation, working hard, fighting against the earth. Why is work so hard? Because of physical alienation with creation. See, all of these things, all of the problems of mankind come from that decision. Who will we follow? God or Satan? Is not all of history our meager attempts to fix the symptoms of the problem? I was uh, in my living room about three days ago, and all of a sudden I heard something that sounded like an F-18 landing in my kitchen. It was unbelievably loud. Now the jets are very loud when they fly over my house, but I'm telling you, a jet was in our house. And as I struggled to pinpoint the problem, I discovered it was my dishwasher. Something was going south with my dishwasher. It was like there was a F-18 trapped in my dishwasher. I'm wondering what's going on here. So I go ahead and I, you know, shut the thing down. And obviously, you know, I, I'm somewhat of an expert at dishwashers. You know, that was one of my seminary classes. So, you know, I pull out the racks and I start pulling on stuff, you know, and there's that thing down at the bottom and that thing looks a little bit loose. So I start taking that apart, you know, because obviously I'm going to be able to solve the problem of my dishwasher. And there's some gunk down at the bottom, so I'm pulling that out. So I do all that. I put it back together again, thankfully. I turn on the dishwasher, and there's the same sound again and again and again. You see, the problem was, at the end of the day, what I discovered, it wasn't any of the fringe stuff. The problem was the motor of my dishwasher had gone. It was done. And save for pulling out that motor and fixing it, nothing was going to stop that jet engine whine. <laughs> See, the problem of mankind is not all of this outside stuff. It's not the relationships. It's not the physical alienation. Those are all symptoms of a problem. The problem of humanity is the human heart. We want to fix the symptoms, and if we can fix the symptoms, the problem will go away, but friends, it won't. I don't know if you've been following this whole Occupy Wall Street thing that's been going on in Occupy Oakland and these, these movements of people that are sort of rising up and protesting the, the fiscal inequality between the haves and the have-nots. They want to fix a social alienation problem. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't lobby for those types of fixes, but I am telling you this, that there's no way to fix that problem because the problem is in the human heart. You know, you may be a politico and a huge Republican or a Democrat, and you know, you're, you're saying if we can just get the right people into office, if we can just get the right people, get the wrong people out of office, we're going to get this country on track and all of our problems are going to be fixed. Friends, it's not. Because that's just a symptom of a deeper problem. Am I saying we shouldn't participate in the political process? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying we should not look to fix the symptoms. Maybe during this Christmas season, you're saying to yourself, you know what my problem is? I've gotten away from God. I've got to get back to God. I've got to go to church more, you know? 
got to be more religious. I've got to be more disciplined. All of those are good things, but they're only dealing with the symptoms. What about relational alienation in your marriage? Been fighting with your spouse? You know, we got to get in. we got to see a counselor. we got to deal with these problems right now. Now, I'm a big fan of counselors. My wife is a counselor. But those, at the end of the day, are symptoms of a deeper problem. The problem, my friends, is sin. Our desire to be like God has brought the misery on human history. And so what we must do is we must acknowledge this. We must acknowledge that the problem is sin. If we don't, we'll spend our whole life trying to fix symptoms. But we must be brave enough to acknowledge that the problem is that we've chosen the wrong God. We don't want to acknowledge that. We want to pitter around with the dishwasher, don't we? Twist something here or there. But until we're brave enough to take a look and acknowledge that there is a problem, we can never fix it. History only makes sense if there is a Savior. And your life will only make sense if there is a Savior. That is man's problem. Well, let's move on to God's promise. Here in Genesis 3.15, we see the problem, but now we see the promise. Because God had said that if you eat from the tree, you will surely die. But man didn't die, did he? He didn't collapse and fall right there. Indeed, while the apple bite was still fresh, God utters a prophecy. Might interest you to see that the first prophecy in the entire Bible is right here. And the first prophet was not Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. The first prophet was God himself. Verse 15, God summons the man and the woman and Satan. And he has a conversation with all of them right before. And he says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, God is summoning and communicating this is the way the world is going to be. That there will be a battle between you, Satan, and you, human race. And indeed, it's a battle instituted by me. I will put enmity between you two. There will be a battle. This word enmity in Hebrew means uh, viciousness. It means battle. It means warfare. It means murderous intent. That here is a battle that will be between you, Satan, and between you, woman. And, but this battle is to continue through the ages. And between your offspring and between her offspring. This word in the Hebrew, Zeroah, between your seed and your seed. Now this word Zeroah is very interesting because sometimes it refers to all of your offspring and sometimes it refers to a specific one. Now when you think of this passage, it doesn't make sense. That there is to be this battle between the woman's offspring, okay, we get that, the woman will have child, and between Satan's offspring. Well, Satan is an angel, he's a spiritual being. They don't have children. Angels don't procreate. Who is this offspring of Satan? It appears that the offspring of Satan will be people. People in the human race who buy into the lie that we can be like gods. 
And there will be a battle in the human race, Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. Now, the scripture here doesn't say that the woman's offspring will necessarily be good of their own cognizance. Rather, by God's grace, God will enlighten some to see the truth that God is the one who is God over all and give them repentant hearts. And so all of life will be this deeper battle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. When you think about this, this makes sense, doesn't it? Think of in the collective consciousness of humanity. Think of every single great movie that's ever been out there. Is it not a giant battle between the forces of evil and the forces of good? The rebellion and the evil empire with Darth Vader. Sauron and his goblins and the fellowship of the ring. Culminating in a final battle between good and evil. But in this prophecy, God shows that there will be an end. He will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. Now, who is God talking about? He says that there will be a battle between your offspring, Satan, and your offspring, woman. And then he says, he will crush your head. Well, it can't be. Who is this he? He's certainly not talking about Satan. It's Satan's head will be crushed. And he's certainly talking about the woman. The woman is a she. What he's saying is that one will come, a singular seed out of the seed of the woman, who will come, who will one day crush the head of the serpent. And you, Satan, will bruise his heel. That out of all of this battle, a final battle will occur. You, Satan, will bruise his heel. You shall wound him, but not fatally. And yet this one, he, will crush your head. He will kill you. That at the end of the day, evil will be destroyed. Satan, the prince of the world, the prince of darkness, will be destroyed. That all of this alienation that we experience will come to an end because of the offspring of the woman. Now, it's very interesting, you know, who is this offspring of the woman? In the Bible, if you read the Bible, they always trace the genealogy, the lineage of the person through the man. Now, Moses was the son of, was the son of, was the son of, and so on and so on throughout the Old Testament, except for one. One who was born to a virgin had no dad for a father. One who was the offspring of the woman. The offspring of the woman is Jesus, the one we have been waiting for, the one foretold about, the one who will set all things right. Back to my saga with my dishwasher. I finally came to my senses that despite my greatest Mind, I could not fix this dishwasher. So what did I do? I called my repairman, whose name Joseph Godbolt. Okay, talk about a titanic name. If anyone could fix a dishwasher, it would be Joseph Godbolt. I'm convinced my sermons would be even more effective if my name was Pastor Joseph Godbolt. <laughs> Needless to say, he comes to the dishwasher, and he's not put off by the symptoms. He's not worried about the jet engine noise. He goes into that thing and he starts going right to the, the problem because he knew the problem. 
The problem was the motor. Joseph knew that the only way to fix this dishwasher was to reach in, to grab that motor, to pull it out, and to put a brand new one in. And that's exactly what he did for the mere low, low price of $306. See, the reality is I couldn't fix that problem. But Joseph Godbold could. The reality is you and I can't fix the problems of the world. Indeed, we cannot fix the problems of our diseased heart. Anyone ever hear of a heart surgeon performing heart surgery on themselves? No, we need someone else. And so if the number one thing we have to do is recognize there's a problem, the number two thing we have to do is recognize that we need a savior. One who is authorized to deal with the problem. So my question for you is, are you trying to still solve your own problem? Or have you called in someone who's not authorized to take care of it? I've recently married someone, or I'm dating someone, you know, his name is Mr. Wright, or Mrs. Wright. Because if I marry him, everything will be taken care of. All of my problems with psychological alienation will go away because I finally can feel good about myself because of Mr. Wright. All of my problems of social alienation will be taken care of because he will make everything right. He'll bring together my family. He'll bring peace in my family. He'll bring peace in my relationships as soon as I get him. As soon as I find him, all of my spiritual problems, the longings of my heart will be taken care of. The reality is you've put all of your hopes on this person. They're not a boyfriend. They're not a fiance. They're a savior. But there's only one who God has authorized. The seed of the woman, the one born of the virgin. There's only one who has the ability to stand up to evil and win. Who can crush the devil's head. And so we must stop seeking saviors. We must stop trying to build saviors. Whether it's our spouse, our boss, our kids, the bottle, the internet, or our bank account. Because history only makes sense if there is one true Savior, and our life will only make sense. And so we see the picture of God's plan. This is my third point. I'll close with this point. God gives us a promise, but He also sh shows us that He has a plan. Because we are looking back on God's plan this Advent season, aren't we? Because this one born of the woman did come. And we were able to see a battle that was played out between Satan and Jesus. Remember, from Jesus' very birth, what did Herod do? The offspring of Satan send forth soldiers into Galilee to kill all of the babies. But Jesus escaped. And then Satan faces Jesus in the desert to tempt him, but he cannot overcome him. And yet we see something very interesting, that Jesus does not come as a warrior, comes as a carpenter. He does not come in battle dress. He does not strike Satan down with a sword. How does he intend to kill Satan? See, we have to understand who Satan is. The word Satan in Hebrew, Satan, means to accuse. The word devil means slanderer. See, Satan has no power except that which is given to him from above, but Satan has a function. 
to point out man's sin. And what Satan, this serpent, has done as he has fastened himself to humanity by his fangs. And he said, God, if you're going to kill me, you have to kill them because they've done the exact same thing that I have done. And so in order to kill Satan, Jesus must defang him. In order to crush his head, he must first crush his voice. And so Satan has come to destroy the work of the devil. But in order to do that, he must take the fangs of Satan off humanity and he must fasten them on himself. Indeed, you will bruise his heel. Jesus Christ, victory over sin must be accomplished at the cost of his very life. And so we can see that Christ in claiming the victory, experience this fourfold alienation that mankind experienced. Did he not experience social alienation? Did his friends not desert him? Did the crowds who said, Hosanna, come in the highest, not mock him and condemn him to be crucified? Was he not hung naked on a cross for the world to see? Did he not experience physical alienation? Was he not forced to carry the cross made from the wood of the tree that he himself grew? The iron in the nails? Did he not know thirst? Did he not know hunger? Did he not know pain? Did Christ not experience psychological alienation? As we see him hanging on the cross with the fangs of Satan attached to him, utterly lost, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utterly rent apart psychologically. And did he not experience spiritual alienation? See no answer from the Father who had turned his back on him. You see, for Jesus to crush Satan, he must first be crushed. For Jesus to free man from sin, he must be imprisoned by it. And so Jesus was faithful to the end. The scriptures tell us that Jesus canceled the record of death that stood against us. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross on his own body, disarming the rulers and the authorities. He put them to shame, triumphing over them. You know, they say when you have a snake bite, that if someone can get to it and they can put their mouth on it and suck out the poison and spit it out, that they can remove the effects well, Jesus put his lips on the poison of the serpent, and he drunk it whole. And Christ died that day and was laid in a tomb. But he rose again, because death could not keep his hold on the one who was conqueror over all. And so this Christmas season, as the world stops and wonders at this one called Christ, they don't fully understand. They know that something happened 2,000 years ago. But we who have heard the gospel can look, not in expectation, but in realization that a battle was won. That all who believe in Christ, the fangs of Satan, have been taken off and put on him. You know that song that we sang just a little, more, a little ago, Joy to the World. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. 
He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Life and history can never be the same. Christ is coming. It was R.T. France that said, In his coming, the last days to which the Old Testament look forward arrives, but they have not yet run their course. The Christian church is still living in these last days. Jesus' first coming inaugurated it. His second coming will consummate it. The coming of Jesus, therefore, was the beginning of the end. And so, my friends, we, more than anyone, have the opportunity to celebrate what Christ has done for us. We, in the church, have a new life, a new motor, a new heart. God calls us to live differently. For we can experience the blessings of the first fruits of God even now. That the social alienation between us can be broken down through His love. That we can love one another here at Church of the Redeemer. That God can be with us. That we can find peace with ourselves even amidst this world. And that we can find the spiritual peace of God. The battle continues. The war is over. But we must hold on, for he has not yet come back. So I leave you with this thought. If you are a Christian, celebrate joy to the world. The Lord has come. You can find peace in him. If you are not a believer yet, I ask you to ask this question. Who do I want to be the offspring of? Christ has come. Your life only makes sense if there is a Savior. Indeed, history only can make sense if there is a Savior. Let us contemplate that as we live through this Christmas season. Let us pray.